Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Hi there, I'm Jack Ward, and this special mini-summer series is remembering Mark Brissy, one of the golden age of modern audio drama pioneers. And today, I'm here with my good buddy Pete Lutz. Pete's been burning across the modern audio drama scene for getting close to a decade now with his team, the Narada Radio Company, including, among other things, Pulpery Theatre, Jake Dimes, and The Cellar, not to mention a bundle of recreations, both for Narada, Larry Groby's Project Audion, and of course, a stalwart for Sonic Summerstock. You can always hear Pete hosting as he's a founding member of the Mutual Audio Network on Monday matinees, and we can't forget that he's the driving force behind Moonlight Audio. Heck, if we kept going on, we would run out of time. Pete does everything, and one of the things Pete's been doing <laughs> as well, he's been acting a lot for a lot of troops, which um, one of those troops was Mark Razzi's Leap Audio. Hi, Pete. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. My head is like this big from all the nice <laughs> things you just said about me, so thank you. They're true. That. They're not nice things. They're true things. I'm always amazed at how much you get out, my friend. I, I am honestly at this point very jealous. I wish I could be done my master's and get producing more than I'm not. So, well, but I came up with the policy of he who dies with the most audio dramas wins. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I came to the table late. You started. That's true. What, 14 years ago or more, uh, I, I didn't. I, I, I had a, a, a brief start in 2001 and then didn't do anything for a dozen years and started up uh, steadily in 2013. So it's, it's like since then, uh, I've, I've just got to make and make and make and make and make audio drama as much as I can. Yeah, well, you started first. That's great. I'm driven. Driven. I think I'm up to 20 years at this point so that's that awesome. I've been writing. So that's nice. Um, when did you first start talking to Mark? It has to be uh, 2014, I think. Uh, um, I, I didn't do anything for him until maybe 2016 or so but um 
but I first started hearing his voice in things and and I loved the the sound of his voice so uh, um, deep and resonant and and clear and just a beautiful uh, uh, intonation. So <clears throat> I had to get him involved in something. So I, I, I asked him to be um, in, a, in a, a special feature for Poultry Theater called Mr. Question Man. And he was, he was the host and uh, brought, you know, asked questions from our listening public. And the listening public is in quotations because they were all fake questions <laughs> designed for comedy. And uh, I played the, the Mr. Question Man. So uh, he, he asked the questions and I answered them. And, and then the men in little white coats came and got me <laughs> because I was actually quite insane. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's, so that that's, was fun, and, and yeah. then I got him involved in Jake Dimes Range Detective, and he played Doc Burnside in that. Uh, did a wonderful job in, in, in that uh, character as well. And he asked me to be, I think, in four of his plays for Leap Audio. Um, and then, I don't know, he disappeared from Facebook, and I didn't hear from him for a long time, and then found out he had passed away. So it was... Um, a, a, pretty much of a shock uh something that people don't know was that he and i were chatting a lot um before he disappeared from facebook um and he was really interested in uh, coming down to corpus christi and living there moving out of new york because of the harsh winters and coming down to a place where he didn't have to worry about the snow right. <laughs> all the time uh, and I would have loved that if he had been able to come down here and live here. We would have gotten together for coffee every day, you know, or, or as much as possible and, and, and shot the breeze and made yeah. audio drama together. And, and and probably done a lot of live stuff because that you do a lot of live stuff yeah, as well in Corpus have, Christi. I have, so I would have gotten him involved in our in our live shows as well. So um, I, I'm sorry that that didn't happen. It's really it's heartbreaking. So yeah. What, what, what was your, um, so you obviously develop a bit of a friendship co having conversations back and forth. How would you, how would you um, describe Mark to people who didn't know who he was? That's a toughie. Um, he was just, he seemed to be genuinely sweet. Uh, he he um, had, he had goals. I mean, he, he's like me. He had a job that he didn't really like that brought in money so that he could make audio drama. I'm the same way. <laughs> I work for the government and I have a, a civil service job that, that uh, is never going to promote me. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm working that job so I can buy micro, put microphones on the table. <laughs> <laughs> it, gives, it gives me enough free time to uh, make audio drama. So yeah, I, I was always called that. teaching my Clark Kent job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, so because mild mannered uh, teacher Jack that's right. Ward. Because then, yeah, the 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 real love, the real superhero stuff is when we get to do these things. And uh, but but Mark was like that as well, and I I think he uh, really enjoyed writing. Uh, he sent me several scripts um, to look at and ask his ask my opinion on, and uh, he he was always coming up with something, and then. Uh, when I performed in one of his shows, it was uh, um, usually a very a, a off the beaten path for me. I played, you know, because his Leap Audio 
was about um, uh, where, where everybody's gay, but they don't make a big deal about it. And right. that's what I thought was terrific. Uh, um, they're gay, but they don't say, I'm gay. It's just, mm. they, all, they just happen to be. Right. And they're doing everyday normal people things. They just happen to be gay. So mm -hmm. what's the big deal? And I loved how he did that. Um, and so uh, Austin Beach and I played a married couple in one of his in one of his plays. And uh, I think one of us one of us was dying and the other had to um, do a big emotional scene about how he didn't want <clears throat> he didn't want the other person to die. I forget. I forget it was me or if it was Austin. But, mm -hmm. you know, Austin is. Uh, really did a good job on that i'm happy that we he paired us up two straight guys playing two great two gay guys it was he had no problem very, doing that right fun, and that no. was awesome because again what's the big deal it's a matter yeah. of a great role it should be a great role right yeah and, well i agree and and it's um and and the, i'm all for diversity i'm all for people who can who, who are that thing who are playing that thing but if you can't find the people who are playing that thing sure. and that's how, that's the trouble in, in in audio drama if you're not paying somebody you you get who can do the role who right. doesn't care if he gets paid so i have uh white people playing asians from time to time and it just what are you going to do you have to do it uh, yes. if you want the if you want to produce the play and so he found straight people to play gay people and we just did it like regular people we didn't right. uh, put on any sort of you know, no, no sort of uh, campy accents or anything like that because Mark sure. didn't, he didn't want that. Of course. Um, yeah. And one thing I do, I like, you mentioned about Mark that I really like too, is that he's really collaborative. Like he really wanted to share whatever he was writing and ask your opinion genuinely what, what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, I love that about him because I felt that we could be collaborative together when we wrote stuff. Did you feel that same kind of sentiment? I did, and uh, there was a, a terrific um, collaborative. It was during the uh, pandemic. Gareth Severn started a, a play, and he sent he, he wrote part of it, and he sent it to somebody who wrote some more, and sent it to somebody else who wrote some more. And I think Mark was part of that. Um, it was a science fiction uh, a play, and and once it was done, he then cast it and uh, and produced it. So uh, I believe Mark wrote a significant uh, a section of that that play. And he collaborated with MJ Cogburn of Darker Projects quite a bit. Um, he may have done some things with uh, Victor Aurelius and uh, Jeff Niles, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, I, I can imagine him doing, I, I, I'm fairly certain he did voices for them. I don't know if he collaborated in other ways, but I'm sure he played characters for them and, and Jeff Niles. We'll have to have and, a retrospective um, for those two yeah. as well at some point. Yeah. They were they were huge yeah. as well. Also I, gone but not forgotten. For absolutely. Sure. Um, but and there's a particular play that you want to uh, feature today that you guys had worked on that I was lucky enough to to have a part in as well. Do you want to talk about that? It's called Eight. It's the story of two gay couples and their fight to challenge the constitutionality of California's Proposition 8, which went into effect, the, and I'm reading from my own description here, uh, <laughs> which went into effect in the first decade of the 21st century. Proposition 8 essentially made it illegal for same-sex couples to marry and fashioned from actual dialogue, TV political ads, and court transcripts, 8 is a moving, gripping drama that you must share with your family and friends. Okay, bah. <laughs> and... Um, uh, it was written by Dustin Lance Black, who is uh, a TV writer. He wrote uh, a TV miniseries called When We Rise, 
and he gave uh, Mark permission to adapt it for audio. And he uh, he reached out to me. He said, "You have a lot of actors. Um, let's get you part of that. We'll share directing credit, and um, we'll get um, as many people as possible to uh, to record it." Um, let me see. So it's a cast of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it's a eight, huge nine, cast. 10, yeah. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So 22, 22 actors had to be wrangled. And um, he did all the post-production too. And he Mom. did, yes, he did yeah. the post-production. I uh, got the actors, those who were local, I had them come in. I directed them um, locally. And then he reached out to several, um, also who sent in remote readings, and um, and, and, and you know, including you, uh, right. Jester Tim Gillick, uh, Mark Bruzzi was in it himself, and um, my own son Kian was in it. Nice, <laughs> and um, a lot of Narada people um, were in, were yeah. in as well. So it turned out. I think it turned out really good. Um, it's, um, yeah, and MJ was in it too, if I remember correctly. MJ Conrad. Yes, MJ yeah. and her sons. Uh, oh, okay. Um, well, I don't know. Is Michael... Michael and Mason. Right. Yeah, or, I know. I see Mason. Michael and Mason are here. I don't know if one's their husband or one's her... Because <laughs> so. she's married to Michael, but that also might be her son, yeah. Michael. Because she has okay. two sons. Okay, cool. So, uh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. lots of uh, lots of Narada folks in there. Um mm -hmm. And and it's um how long is it? It's an hour and a half. It's an hour and a half program. So so we'll get um, right to it. I just wanted to know if you had any last thoughts uh, that you wanted to share with everybody about Mark, and if or if a message you wanted to say to Mark, if you could. Well, if I could, I, I would. I would say. I would. I'd love to. I would have loved to have a chance to say goodbye to him and. Um, if I'd known he was he was ill, um, I would have I would have tried to find him, reach out to him. Uh, the the way things work on Facebook, if somebody's gone for a while, you know you tend not to notice it until they come back and say, "Oh, I didn't," you know. Right. So um, I'm I'm sorry that that I didn't know, and um, I would have I would have reached out if I'd known. And I'm so I would like to would have liked to say goodbye, and I'm sorry. And, um, yeah. and I hope wherever he is now, you know, I, he, if he believes in heaven, then I hope he's there. And right. if, if not, then wherever he wanted to go. For um, sure. But I um, love the show is terrific. And uh, if you have never heard it before, uh, you'll really enjoy it. And um, Mark put himself into the show uh, and a lot of um, in, in, for a lot of the best reasons. And And keep in mind, this came out before the uh, Supreme Court ruling, the Obergefell uh, ruling about uh, same-sex marriage. Right. Um, so it predated that. And it's right. timely now again, right? Mm -hmm. as, as we look at, at, at changes of courts and such. So Don't get me started. No, we don't, I don't <laughs> want to get any of it. We'll be here forever. But the point of the matter is, is that um, Mark, Mark had his, his finger on the pulse of those issues. And thank, thankfully, he, you know, he, was, he was. He was a pioneer in many ways and uh thank you so much pete for sharing your memories and listen everyone to eight thank you glad to be here thanks for asking me 
The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Leap Audio and the Narada Radio Company present Eight, a play by Dustin Lance Black. And here are your hosts, Mark Bruzy and Pete Lutz. In May 2009, the American Foundation for Equal Rights filed a lawsuit, Perry v. Schwarzenegger, in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California on behalf of plaintiffs, two same-sex couples, to challenge a voter-approved constitutional amendment known as Proposition 8 that eliminated same-sex couples' rights to marry. The same-sex couples were represented by David Boies and former U.S. Solicitor General Theodore Olson, two high-profile attorneys who opposed each other in the U.S. Supreme Court case Bush v. Gore. During the trial, the plaintiffs presented expert witnesses of which nine the court found, quote, were amply qualified to offer opinion testimony on the subjects identified, end quote, and, quoting again, offered credible opinion testimony on the subjects identified, end of quote. The defense for Proposition 8 presented only two expert witnesses who were willing to testify under oath. The most important one, David Blankenhorn, was ultimately judged as lacking, quote, the qualifications to offer opinion testimony, unquote. Blankenhorn, the witness against gay marriage, during cross-examination, admitted to and identified 23 benefits of adopting same-sex marriage, published in his book, The Future of Marriage. These benefits included the happiness and well-being of gays, lesbians, their children, and family members, an increase in the proportion of gays and lesbians in stable, committed relationships, a higher living standard for same-sex couples, fewer children growing up in state institutions, and more growing up in loving adoptive and foster families, a decrease in the amount of anti-gay prejudice and hate crimes, and a decrease in the number of those warily viewed as other in society and therefore furthering the American ideal of equality. Opponents of same-sex marriage were unable to provide credible evidence proving their claim that same-sex marriage would harm society or the institution of marriage. On August 4, 2010, Chief District Court Judge Vaughn Walker ruled that the Proposition 8 ban on same-sex marriage violated the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution and that there was no legitimate reason to deny same-sex couples the fundamental right of marriage. And now, 8. By Dustin Lance Black. We'll be back after this message. Mom, guess what I learned in school today? What, sweetie? I learned how a prince married a prince, and I can marry a princess. Think it can happen? It's already happened. When Massachusetts legalized gay marriage, schools began teaching second graders that boys can marry boys. The courts ruled parents had no right to object. 
Under California law, public schools instruct kids about marriage. Teaching children about gay marriage will happen here unless we pass Proposition 8. Yes on 8. Chris and Sandy one night after work had us sit down in the family room, which they never do. So of course, we knew something terrible was going to happen, or something really fun. So we sat down and Chris was like, I was approached and asked if I wanted to be a part of this case, and I'm, okay, what case? And she says it was whether or not to see if Proposition 8 was unconstitutional or not. But I would have soccer practice and soccer games throughout the entire week then also be playing club soccer. So basically, I would have to miss a lot of that. You know, you associate the word activism with people who, you know, signs. Not extremists, but people who... When I think of Chris and Sandy, I think of people who, not humble, but, you know, people that don't want to force their views on people. I mean, we thought our parents were married. Yeah. That's how they explain it to us. So when we think of marriage, we think of Chris and Sandy. We think of our parents. But I know for a fact that there's a lot of kids in my school who don't see them as married. So what do we expect? I mean, I've never been in a courtroom where my parents are testifying against their own government. Uh, I honestly can't tell you because I think they might be shattered with what's going to happen. Calling civil case 09-2292, Kristen Perry et al. versus Arnold Schwarzenegger et al. Appearances, counsel, please. All rise. On election day 2008, Californians voted in favor of Proposition 8, thus rewriting the California state constitution to add a ban on marriage for gay and lesbian citizens who were already enjoying that right. Well, now two lawyers most famous for representing opposing sides of Bush v. Gore have teamed up to take Proposition 8 to federal court. Good morning, Your Honor. Theodore B. Olson on behalf of the plaintiff. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. David Boyce on behalf of the plaintiff. Chief Judge Vaughn Walker, a Republican appointee, agreed with Mr. Boyce and Mr. Olson that the case could be broadcast, but the defendants, the opponents of gay marriage, turned to Charles Cooper. Good morning, Mr. Chief Judge. Charles Cooper for the defendant intervenors. Mr. Cooper filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was successful, and the Supreme Court blocked plans to broadcast the trial. And thus, the nation was denied access to the testimony of plaintiffs Jeff Cirillo and Paul Katami and Sandy Steer and Chris Perry. But the transcripts of this trial could not be hidden. And on June 16, 2010, the closing arguments of this historic case commenced. These are the words, the witnesses, the testimony, and the trial. The defenders of Proposition 8 have fought so hard to keep from public view. Mom. Mom. Right here. Did you get through security okay? Yeah, obviously. They took us in the back way. 
around all the press. Did you talk to any of the cameras? Yeah. And? I just said, this case is about us as Americans wanting to be treated equally by our government. And, under the law, we are going into court today with that simple request. You did it like that? What's wrong with that? I mean, you seem really nervous. Come on, cell phone's off. Come on, let's go find our seats. Wait, will we be done in time for soccer practice? I'm not sure. Come on, let's go. Let's go. What do you mean you're not sure? Who knew we were going to have to go through an actual trial, Elliot? I mean, who knows what we're going to have to do today, because personally, I have never sued Arnold Schwarzenegger before. Now move it. Obviously, the hiatus that we've had is not anything that I would have hoped for, but it may be appropriate that the case is coming to a closing argument now. June is, after all, the month for weddings, so I would simply propose that we get right to business. Mr. Olson, are you leading off for the plaintiff? I am, Your Honor. May it please the court. We conclude this trial, Your Honor, where it began. This case is about marriage and equality. The fundamental constitutional right to marry has been taken away from the plaintiffs and tens of thousands of similarly situated Californians. This state has rewritten its constitution in order to place them into a special disfavored category where their most intimate personal relationships are not valid, not recognized, and second-rate. I am going to, with your permission, Your Honor, play some excerpts from the testimony of the plaintiffs. Raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Would you tell us briefly about your background? I was born in Illinois, but my parents moved here with me when I was two years old. Well, I grew up on a farm in southern Iowa, going to public schools. I am the executive director of a statewide agency that provides services and support to families with children zero to five. Now, today you are in a committed relationship with another gay man, correct? I have found someone that I know I can dedicate the rest of my life to. And when you find someone who is not only your best friend, but your best advocate and supporter in life, it's a natural next step for me to want to marry that person. March will be nine years. Sandy and I live together in Berkeley with our children. We each bring two biological children to our family and each other. Our two younger sons are in high school. I remember the first time I met Sandy, thinking she was maybe the sparkliest person I ever met. And our friendship became deeper and deeper over time. And then, after a few years, I began to feel that I might be falling in love with her. And how did she feel about you? Well, she told me that she loved me, too. We will be asking her to verify that. <laughs> okay. It's always been an awkward situation at the front desk of a hotel. The individual working the desk will look at us perplexed. You ordered a king-size bed? Is that really what you want? It's certainly an awkward situation, walking into the bank and asking, saying, my partner and I want to open a joint bank account and, and hearing, you know, a business account? An LLC or an S corporation? No, not my business partner, my partner. Being able to call him my husband is so definitive. It's something that everyone understands. I'm a 45-year-old woman, and I've been in love with a woman for 10 years, and I don't have a word to tell anybody about that. Unless you have to go through that constant validation of self, there's no way to really describe how it feels. I love Jeff more than myself, and being excluded in that way is so incredibly harmful to me. 
Opponents of Prop 8 said gay marriage has nothing to do with schools. Then a public school took first graders to a lesbian wedding, calling it a teachable moment. Now this politician says schools aren't required to teach about marriage. Yet his official website confirms teaching marriage is required in 96% of schools. And a leading Prop 8 opponent has warned parents cannot remove children from this instruction. Unless we vote yes on Proposition 8, children will be taught about gay marriage. Whether you like it or not. Your Honor, the words they put into the hands of California voters focused heavily on protect our children. Protect our children from somehow learning that gay marriage is okay that there is something wrong, sinister, or unusual about gays, and that their relationships are not okay and decidedly not suitable for children. For obvious reasons, however, the gays are not okay message was largely abandoned during this trial in favor of procreation and deinstitutionalization themes. And I submit that the overwhelming evidence of this case proves that allowing persons to marry someone of the same sex will not, in the slightest, deter heterosexuals from marrying or from having babies. Well, they have identified a difference between opposite-sex and same-sex couples in that opposite-sex couples can procreate without the intervention of some third party. Why is that difference not one that the voters could rationally take into account? Your Honor, you would have to make some statement that allowing these other individuals to engage in the institution of marriage will somehow stop that procreation or stop people from getting married or cause them to get divorced. If we had time, Your Honor, I could not present a more compelling closing argument than simply replaying the testimony in its entirety of the four plaintiffs. But we have so much more. There are eight experts, Your Honor, Persons who have studied and written about American history, marriage, psychology, sociology, economics, and political science. Professor Cott, for example, an expert in marriage. Marriage, the ability to marry, to say, I do, is a basic civil right. It expresses the right of a person to have the liberty to consent validly. And this can be seen very strikingly in American history through the fact that slaves lack that very basic liberty of a person to say, I do, with the force that I do has to have. And what happened when slaves were emancipated? Well, when slaves were emancipated, they flocked to get married. It was said by an ex-slave who had also been a Union soldier. The marriage covenant is the foundation of all of our rights, meaning that it was the most everyday exhibit of the fact that he was a free person. No further questions, Your Honor. Mr. Cooper, you may cross-examine. In the 19th century, many Americans engaged in informal marriages, correct? That is true. And pregnancy or childbirth was the signal for a couple to consider themselves married, correct? Well... Not always. Sometimes. Well, let's look at Public Vows, your book, which has been admitted. Page 31. Uh, page 31, you said. Hmm. 
It reads in part, Marriage frequently followed upon a sexual relationship between a man and a woman proving fruitful rather than preceding it. Pregnancy or childbirth was the signal for a couple to consider themselves married. You believed that when you wrote these words, didn't you? Well, yes, but as I said, frequently, not always. And you provided a statement to the Vermont legislature when it was considering same-sex marriage? Not to the legislature, to their joint judiciary committee. I see. And when you provided that statement in Vermont, the law that resulted was a compromise which gave something to the Catholics and other conservative groups and something to the LGBT community, correct? It did state in its first line, marriage is between a man and a woman. And then it went on to grant a civil union arrangement that gave all the rights and benefits to same-sex couples. Yes. Your Honor, we have no further questions. Thank you, Professor. A civil union? A domestic partnership would relegate me to the level of a second-class citizenship, maybe even third-class citizenship. It doesn't give due respect to the relationship that we've had for almost nine years. Only a marriage could do that. Husband is definitive. It's something that everyone understands. There's no subtlety to it. It is absolute. And it comes with the understanding that your relationship is not temporal. It's not new. It's not something that could fade easily. We would love to have a family, but the timeline for us has always been marriage first because it solidifies the relationship. And we gain access to that language that is global where it won't affect our children in the future. They won't have to say, my dad and dad are domestic partners. Because truth is, not everyone knows what a domestic partnership is. We want our children to be protected from any awkwardness like that. We want to focus on raising our kids. I think it's quite clear that young children do not aspire to be domestic partners. Uh, <laughs> for young people, and certainly for people later on, marriage is a desirable and respected type of goal that, if you attain it, it's something that gives you pride and respect. Dr. Mayer, as one of the leading experts on stigma and discrimination, do you have an opinion as to whether domestic partnerships enjoy similar symbolic and social meaning? In my mind, Proposition 8, in its social meaning, sends a message that gay relationships are not to be respected, that they are of secondary value, if any value at all, and that they are, are certainly not equal to those of heterosexuals. And to me, that's, in addition to not allowing gay people to marry, it also sends a strong message about the values of the state and, in this case, the Constitution itself. Are you aware that same-sex marriage has been legal since 2004 in Massachusetts? Yes. Do LGBT individuals suffer from a lower prevalence of mental health disorders in Massachusetts than in California? Well, the first answer is I, I don't really know. But that's not how... Um, I, I, I wouldn't expect it exactly in that way that you are suggesting that that would be the test of that. Because... Massachusetts is not an isolate of the United States, and certainly I would think that people in Massachusetts who are gay would feel more supported and welcome, so to speak. But your answer is, you don't know, correct? Well, I, I don't... I, I don't have the data on that. You don't have data? No. Right. Okay, okay. 
Do LGB individuals suffer from a lower prevalence of mood, anxiety, and substance use problems in Massachusetts than in California? Again, I don't know of a study that compared California to Massachusetts on any of those outcomes. Okay, okay. And I was planning to ask you about the other outcomes, but the answer would be the same, right? Right. No further questions, Your Honor. With us today from New York and Virginia, we have Evan Wolfson, whose work is focused on winning marriage equality, and Maggie Gallagher, who is president of the National Organization for Marriage. Now, Mrs. Gallagher, is it correct that you believe... Here's the bottom line. Not only do the majority of people, but the majority of courts have recognized that gay marriage is not a civil right. The majority of people believe that it is a civil wrong. Same-sex unions are not marriages. And yes, you have the right to live as you choose. You may even need some benefits or protections. May even? But you do not have the right to redefine marriage. Yeah, but see, we're not redefining marriage. You are, Evan. You have to be in reality. Please don't interrupt. For a majority of Americans, you are redefining marriage. The same groups that funnel their money through Maggie Gallagher's organization are opposed to partnerships and civil unions and every other level of respect. Maggie, is it true that you oppose civil unions? as well. The National Organization for Marriage does not take a direct issue on civil unions. However, we would if it were interfering Right. And what I said was that the same funders who are funneling their money through this organization are opposed to partnerships and every other measure of respect. And Evan, the National Organization... May I finish? I have fought for the marriage issue for 25 years, Evan, because I believe the ideal for a child is a married mother and father. Marriage is not a relationship invented by the government. Marriage is a social institution with deep roots in nature. Listen, Mrs. Gallagher, you're entitled to believe whatever you want. What I said is that the funders who funnel their you money You do not through... believe. That is not true, Evan. Please stop interrupting. Please. You're under investigation for violating campaign laws in three states, and you know we that. We obey the laws of this country. Then why are you under investigation for flouting those laws? Your Honor, the plaintiffs are in the same position as Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving, who in 1967 had no interest in diluting the institution of marriage. They only wanted to marry the person they loved, the person of their choice, who happened to be a person of a different race. That's all these plaintiffs desire, the right to marry the person they love, the person of their choice who happens to be of the same sex. Well now, the Supreme Court decided that the issue which we are confronted with here was not ripe for the Supreme Court to weigh in on. That was 1972. What's happened in the 38 years since 1972? The Supreme Court in Lawrence v. Texas reversed Bowers v. Hardwick with a 6-3 to decision, and the majority of that opinion 
Justice Kennedy and four other justices, decided that case on the basis of due process. The statute in Lawrence was a criminal statute. Yes. The denial of the right to marriage of same-sex couples doesn't have any criminal sanction. I submit it doesn't make any difference. Our fundamental rights cannot be taken away unless the state has a very, very fundamental, strong, compelling reason to do so, and it acts with surgical precision so that it takes no more than the compelling reason justifies. We are talking about a group of individuals who meet every one of the standards for suspect classification. They are a minority. There wasn't any dispute about that. It's an immutable characteristic. The witness said that. I was a very precocious kid, so one day I ended up looking up the word homosexual in the dictionary. Something along the lines of a romantic attraction between members of the same sex. And it slowly dawned on me that that's what I was. So given your prior testimony about homosexuals, how did you feel when you realized that you were gay? Well, once I realized what a homosexual was, I was scared by that. I realized that this was bad news for me, so I hid it as far away from everyone as I could. About this time, did you talk to anyone about being gay? When I was in the seventh grade, I remember being taunted about being gay. I was called faggot. I was called a homo, a queer. It was scary going to that building, realizing these kids were taunting me with a word that was so close to the truth. I would go home crying. Did your parents find out that you were gay? When I was 13 years old, my parents discovered my journal. And for the first time, I had admitted to myself that I was gay. And I had actually written those words. And they found that and read it. And, and what happened when they read that journal? They were very upset. They were yelling. I remember my mother looking at me and telling me that I, telling me that I was going to burn in hell. It was shocking. I'd never heard anything like that from my mother. I mean, you don't get much worse than eternal damnation. And what is NARTH? NARTH stands for the National Association for Reparative Therapy of Homosexuality. It's a reversal therapy organization based in Encino, California. Mm-hmm. And how long were you at NARTH? What ages? 14 to 16. And during that time when you were at NARTH, how was your home life? Um, my mother would tell me that she hated me. Once she told me that she wished she had an abortion instead of a gay son. She told me that she wished I had been born with Down syndrome or that I had been mentally retarded. Who did you meet with at NARTH? I met with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. Where would you meet with Mr. Nicolosi? I did actually fly out to California to do in-person sessions. I recall Nicolosi saying that, you know, homosexuality is incompatible with what God wants for you and your parents want you to change and that this was a bad thing. And were you given any advice on how you were able to suppress your homosexuality in these therapy sessions? I remember it was a general admonishment, but not a specific technique, no. No further questions, Your Honor. Mr. Cooper, you may cross-examine. Mr. Kendall, have you ever lived in the state of California? No, I have not. You've never read a scientific study addressing the concept of sexual orientation. Isn't that true? That is true. 
And isn't it also true that you have never studied whether a person's sexual orientation can change throughout the course of his or her lifetime? No, I haven't studied it. And nothing involved in this conversion therapy was your decision. It was all your parents' decision. Isn't that true? That is correct. And at some point, you communicated to your parents your objections to the counseling treatment, but your parents compelled you to go against your will? Yes. Your only goal for conversion therapy was to survive the experience. Isn't that true? Absolutely true. You didn't have the goal of changing your sexual orientation. I'm sorry, correction. You didn't have the goal of changing your sexual attraction. Is that correct? That's correct. Indeed, you admit that you did not truly want to reduce your sexual attraction to persons of the same sex. Isn't that true? That's correct. It's my experience that people don't want to go to programs like NARTH. Well, you acknowledged in your deposition, did you not, that some people report to have effective results with this conversion therapy. Isn't that true? Yes. I have no further questions, Your Honor. And, uh, was this therapy successful in that you were able to suppress your homosexuality? Nope. I was just as gay as when I started. Well, you were in conversion therapy. Were you introduced to any people who purported, or were purported to you, to have successfully undergone conversion therapy? I remember during one of the group therapy sessions, Nicolosi trotted out his perfect patient, the guy who had been cured of his homosexuality, and... and his name was Kelly. Did meeting Kelly have any impact on your views of conversion therapy? I remember once when Nicolosi stepped out of the room, we were talking amongst ourselves. And Kelly told me that later that night he was going to a gay bar, and that he was just pretending to be cured for the sake of his family. And why did you stop going to reversal therapy? During this whole thing, my life had kind of fallen apart. I didn't have the world that I grew up in, my faith, which was very important to me. My family, which was even more important to me. Everything had just kind of stopped, and I just couldn't take any more, and I realized at one point that if I didn't stop going, I wasn't going to survive. What did you mean by that? Um, I would have... I would have probably killed myself. We will return to the play after this important message. If you're an LGBTQ person thinking about suicide, or if someone you know is, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. LGTB youth thinking about suicide can reach out to the Trevor Project Lifeline, ages 24 or younger, at 866-488-7386. Your Honor, our submission, obviously, is that sexual orientation is not an immutable trait, that it is, that it is an accident, an accident of birth, which... What do you mean, an accident of birth? An accident of birth in the sense that the term has been used consistently by the Supreme Court to identify the kinds of immutable characteristics that go into the calculus on whether heightened scrutiny should apply. 
The Ninth Circuit Court in the high-tech gays case said unequivocally sexual orientation is not an immutable characteristic. That is a quote. But perhaps the most vivid evidence was an APA study which indicated that over a 10-year period, for women who identified themselves as homosexuals, some two-thirds of them had experienced a change in their sexual orientation at least once over the course of their lifetime. I had a hard time relating to the concept of being in love when I was married to my husband. I honestly just couldn't relate to people when they said they were in love. I thought they were overstating their feelings, making a big deal out of something. It, it just seemed dramatic. When you grow up in the Midwest in a farming family, there's a pragmatism that's part of the fabric of life. And I remember as a young girl talking to my mom about love and marriage, and she would say, you know, marriage is more than romantic love. It's more than excitement. It's hard work. And um, in my family, that seemed really true. Um, so I thought that's what I was signing up for when I got married to him. Not that it would be bad, but that it would be hard work. When I first met Chris, I was teaching a computer class, and she was a student. But then we ended up being friends, and... I began to realize that the feelings I had for her were really unique and they were absolutely taking over my thoughts and my entire self. And I grew to realize I had a very strong attraction to her and that I was falling in love with her. And not only were we in love, but we wanted to join our families and both have the kind of life of commitment and stability that we both really appreciated. Because at 47 years old, I have fallen in love one time, and it is with Chris. I have been gay as long as I can remember. I have no attraction, desire, to be with a member of the opposite sex. I have always felt a strong attraction and interest in women, and I have only ever fallen in love with women. I'm 45 years old. I don't think I'm anything other than gay. The American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, and major professional mental health associations have all gone on record affirming that homosexuality is a normal expression of sexuality. Finding, Finding a, a fact, fact number, number 46. 46. Individuals do not generally choose their sexual orientation. No credible evidence supports a finding that an individual may, through conscious decision, therapeutic intervention, or any other method, change his or her sexual orientation. Professor Herrick, can you please describe your educational background? Um, yes. I received my doctorate in social psychology at uh, the University of California. My dissertation focused on heterosexuals' attitudes towards lesbians and gay men. And turning to your opinions, Mr. Herrick, what is sexual orientation? Sexual orientation is a term we use to describe an enduring sexual, romantic, or intensely affectional attraction to men, to women, or to both men and women. It's used to refer to an identity or a sense of self that is based on one's enduring patterns of attraction. So is homosexuality considered a mental disorder? Uh, no. There were empirical studies that had been conducted that had failed to support the view of homosexuality as a mental illness. Okay, looking at the study, the, the definition and scope of sexual orientation, it says, we suggest the term sexual preference is misleading 
as it assumes conscious or deliberate choice or may trivialize the depth of the psychological process involved. We recommend the term sexual orientation because findings indicate that homosexuals' feelings are a basic part of individuals' psyche and are established much earlier than conscious choice would indicate. Do you do you agree with that? Uh, <clears throat> yes. Yes, I do. But these immutability characteristics, they really are not the important factor, are they, in deciding what the level of scrutiny is? Well, Your Honor, yes. With respect, it is critical. It is. It is a critical element, but it isn't It isn't more or different. Differently critical than, say, political power. And, Your Honor, under the Supreme Court's test for political powerlessness, we would submit to you, again, that the evidence is overwhelming that gays and lesbians are not politically powerless, notwithstanding Dr. Segura's testimony. Dr. Segura... How have ballot initiatives in this country affected the rights of gay men and lesbians in terms of political power? Well, for starters, I would include in this undocumented aliens, who are a distant second. There is no group who has been targeted by ballot initiatives more than gays and lesbians. The number of ballot initiative contests since the late 1970s is probably at or above 200. Gays and lesbians lose 70% of the contests, and a 100% of the contents, contests over same-sex marriage and adoption. Are gays and lesbians underrepresented in political office in the United States? At last count, only six people have ever served in the House of Representatives who have been openly gay, and only two of those were elected as openly gay. There has never been an openly gay senator or cabinet member or certainly president, and only about 1% of the state's legislatures are gay. So how does the lack of participation or representation in government positions undermine the political power of gay men and lesbians? <clears throat> there are members of the United States Senate who, in public speeches, have compared same-sex marriages to marrying a box turtle. Senator Coburn has gone on record saying that the gay and lesbian agenda is the greatest threat to the freedom in the United States today and a senator from South Carolina said that gays and lesbians shouldn't be allowed to teach in public schools. It's difficult to imagine an elected official saying such a thing about really almost any other citizen group. Now that's not the fringe, that's a United States senator, and as a consequence, it legitimizes some of these deeply hostile beliefs. I don't want to draw people's criticism. In fact, quite the opposite. I would really like people to like me. I would. So since I know I have this trait that I can't change that people don't like, I go to great lengths to have other traits that people will like. So I put a significant amount of time and energy into being, well, likable, so that when discriminatory things happen, maybe I can turn it around. The decision every day to come out or not at work, at home, at PTA, at music, at soccer, it's, it's exhausting. If, for example, I'm on a plane and somebody comes up and I've saved a seat for Sandy, but she's not there yet, and they say, is that saved? And I say, yes, it's for my partner. And they say, oh, well, then could you please move so I could sit there? 
or if we're at a store and people want to know if we're sisters or cousins or friends. And I have to decide every day if I want to come out everywhere I go and take the chance that somebody will have a hostile reaction or just go there and buy the microwave we went there to buy without having to go through all that again. Let me throw in a question here. Assume I agree with you that the state's interest in marriage is essentially procreative. How does permitting same-sex marriages impair or adversely affect that interest? Your Honor, that gets to the fundamental disagreement there. They say that it's not enough for opposite-sex unions to further and advance these vital state interests, that we have to prove that including same-sex unions into the definition of marriage would actually harm these purposes and interests. That is not equal protection construct. I am asking you to tell me how it would harm opposite-sex marriages. All right. All right. Let's play on the same playing field for once, okay? Your Honor, my aunt's... My answer is, I don't know. I, I don't know. Does that mean, does that mean, if this is not determined to be subject to rational basis review, you lose? No, Your Honor. Just haven't figured out how you're going to win on that basis yet? Your Honor, by saying that the state and its electorate are entitled when dealing with radical proposals for change to move with caution... Keep in mind, this same-sex marriage is a very recent innovation. Its implications of a social and cultural nature, uh, not to mention its impact on marriage over time, can't possibly be known. So this is a political question, and the court should abstain? Is that it? Same-sex marriage. Have you really thought about it? What it means when gay marriage conflicts with our religious freedoms. Why it was forced on us by San Francisco judges when gay domestic partners already have the same legal rights. What it means when our children are taught about it in school. Have you thought about what same-sex marriage means? To me? Think about it. Voting yes restores traditional marriage. Yes on Proposition 8. I was in traffic in Los Angeles, and that's like having coffee with someone in the car next to you. You deal with sitting next to this person over and over again for miles. And I noticed that this person had a Yes on 8 campaign sticker on their bumper, and I thought, I want to see who this person is. And I pulled up, and I looked over, and I got a very distinctive what look back. And I said, I just disagree with your bumper sticker. She said, well, marriage is not for you people anyway. And I thought, God, do I have a gay flag on my car? Like, like, how does she even know I'm gay? And normally, I think I'm pretty good about being able to come back with, you know, something to, to support myself. But I was in shock. And I remember it was a yellow bumper sticker, and it had an image that looked like a parent and child connected because protect the children was a big part of their campaign. But when I think of protecting your children, you protect them from people who will perpetrate crimes against them. You protect yourself from things that can harm you physically, emotionally, 
and the insinuation that I would be part of that category, that, that my getting married to Jeff is going to harm some child somewhere, it's so damning. It's so angering because if you put my nieces and nephews on the stand right now, I'd be the cool uncle. And to think that you had to protect someone from me, from Jeff, from our friends, and from our community, there's no recovering from that. And unless you've experienced that moment, regardless of how proud you are, you feel ashamed. It rocks your world. I'm willing to acknowledge that there are plenty of good Californians that voted for Proposition 8 because they are not, well, let's say they are uncomfortable with gay people. They are uncomfortable with gay people entering into marriage. And they are uncomfortable with the very idea that gay people are just like us. But they didn't hear, and too bad they couldn't have seen the evidence in this trial. The Supreme Court has said that marriage is the most important relation in life. It is the foundation of society. It is essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness. It is a right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights and older than all of our political parties, a right of intimacy to the degree of being sacred. There are 14 Supreme Court decisions that talk about the right of marriage and the testimony of all these expert witnesses and the testimony of the plaintiffs. That erects an insurmountable barrier to the proponents of this proposition. It will not hurt Californians. It will benefit Californians. But as long as it doesn't hurt Californians, to get rid of a harmful stigma in their constitution that's labeling people into classes, then it's unconstitutional. Thank you, Your Honor. Very well. Thank you, Mr. Olson. We have come to lunchtime, and Mr. Cooper, you are up at one, and I look forward to hearing from you at that time. It's not discrimination. It's not discrimination to treat different things differently. I have a message for our good friends who don't agree with us. The 52% of Californians who came together across the lines of race and creed and color to protect marriage as the union of husband and wife are not haters. There is a rather powerful evidence that human beings are a two-sex species designed for sexual rather than asexual reproduction. If this is true, then the absence of desire for the opposite sex represents, at a minimum, a sexual dysfunction. Spencer, aren't you hungry? Uh, no, not really. I can't miss practice again and still start on Friday. Yeah, I have a test. Three tests, actually. How long do we have to be here? At its deepest level, this thing called marriage stands for the reality that our bodies have meaning. That it's not an accident that we are born male and female. That the deepest yearnings of our hearts and even our bodies have a purpose. A baby, as you know, is God's opinion that the world should go on. 
It is not a creature of government, something invented and reinvented for the latest fad. But, I mean, they're not really doing anything in there. They're just providing lots and lots of dense evidence. I mean, I just hear it and I'm like, uh, okay, who cares? You know, I thought it was interesting, personally, but their side, they're just, they're so... Subpar, Spencer. Subpar, that's the perfect word. Thank you, Elliot. And it's nothing we don't know already. So why are we here? What are activist judges proposing to do? To redefine what the word husband means. To redefine what the word wife means. To redefine what the word parent means. So that no longer has these deep roots in the natural order. Hey, we'll get tapas at Fonda's on our way home. How about that? Whatever. We'll just get takeout and walk home. Oh, your mom's, huh? It's that special kind of torture to be like at a restaurant with your mom's, right? It's not that bad. I think you're interesting, Sandy. (laughs) (laughs) Just one more night and we'll be back to normal. And you'll be really, really bored again. I promise. (laughs) So what is this thing called same-sex marriage? I'll tell you what it is. It amounts to a vast social experiment on children. And rewriting the basic rules of marriage puts all children, not just the children in unisex unions, at risk. And that's the real truth. Thank you very much. Mr. Cooper, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Your Honor. The New York Court of Appeals observed in 2006 that, until quite recently, it was an accepted truth for almost everyone who lived in a society in which marriage existed that there could be marriages only between participants of different sex. So the first question is, why has marriage been so universally defined by virtually all societies at all times in human history as an exclusively opposite sex institution? It is because marriage serves a societal purpose that is equally ubiquitous, a purpose that makes marriage fundamental to the very existence and survival of the human race. And the historical record leaves no doubt that the central purpose of marriage in virtually all societies and at all times has been to channel potentially procreative sexual relations into enduring, stable unions to increase the likelihood that any offspring will be raised by a man and woman who brought them into the world. Mr. Olson often quotes the Supreme Court's statement that marriage creates the most important relation in life. That quote comes from the Maynard case, and the Maynard Court explained why the institution of marriage is uniquely imbued with public interest. Do people get married to benefit the community? Your Honor? When one enters into a marriage, you don't say, Oh boy, I'm going to be able to benefit society by getting married. What you think of is, I'm going to get a life partner. Yes, Your Honor. Somebody that I can share my life with, maybe have children. But all sorts of things come out of a marriage. Yeah, but if you... But is this purpose of marriage for individuals to benefit society? Well, it may well be that individuals who get married aren't doing it in order to benefit the community, although that is the ultimate result of it. But the question has to be, well, why does the government regulate this relationship? Why? That's a good question. 
Why doesn't it leave it entirely up to private contract? It is because this relationship is crucial to the public interest because, Your Honor, this procreative sexual relation is an enormous benefit to society, and it represents a very real threat to society's interests. A threat? A threat. A threat in the sense that to whatever extent children are born into the world without this stable, enduring marital unit and raised by both of the parents that brought them into this world, then a host of very, very negative social implications arise. But the state doesn't withhold the right to marriage to people who are unable to produce children of their own. Are you suggesting that the state should? No. No. S Your Honor, no. It, it, it is by no means a necessary... Uh, a necessary condition or a necessary requirement... Well, then the state must have some interest wholly apart from procreation. Your Honor, it isn't a necessary requirement that the state actually insists that individuals who get married have children or be able to have children. How... How would it go about administering such a requirement? It would be... We'd have to... We'd have to have a pre... Premarital fertility testing, some kind of premarital pledge in which the couple found to be fertile, some kind of intrusive process, also pledged to actually have children. Your Honor, these... these kinds of Orwellian... Orwellian... It is Orwellian, but isn't that the logic that flows from the premise that marriage is about procreation? It is enough if the state or the society seeks to attempt to ensure and increase the likelihood... Really, that's what it boils down to. Increase the likelihood that naturally procreative sexual relationships will take place in an enduring and stable family environment for the sake of raising children. Isn't the state indifferent with respect to how the child was conceived? The state and every state and every society for the millennia, Your Honor, has attempted to channel naturally procreative sexual conduct between men and women into an enduring, stable union for the sake of... Let's move on from the millennia to the three weeks in January when we had the trial. What does the evidence show? Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. I... I believe the evidence shows overwhelmingly that this interest in what many call, and the United States Congress calls, responsible procreation, is really at the heart of society's interest in regulating marriage. Okay. Because, for example, what the evidence shows it, is that eminent... I'm just... What was the witness who offered the testimony... What was it and so forth? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, sociologist Kingsley Davis has described the universal societal interest in marriage as recognition and approval of a couple engaging in sexual intercourse and marrying and rearing offspring. Blackstone, Your Honor, said that there are two great relations in private life. First, that of husband and wife. I don't mean to be flip, but Blackstone didn't testify. Kingsley Davis didn't testify. What testimony in this case supports the proposition? But, Your Honor, you don't have to have evidence for this from these authorities. This is, this is in the cases themselves. I don't have to have evidence? You don't. You don't have to have evidence of, the, of this point if one court after another. Your Honor, most courts, most of the courts, at least two-thirds, Your Honor, or just approximately anyway, Two-thirds of all the judges that have looked at this issue before you have, have upheld the traditional, or would have, would have, up, would have upheld this traditional definition of marriage on this rationale. This, this rationale. And the plaintiffs say there is no way to understand why anyone would support Proposition 8 except through some irrational dark motivation, some animus, some, some kind of bigotry. 
Your Honor, that is just not only a slur on 7 million Californians who supported Proposition 8. It is a slur on 70 out of 108 judges who Let have... me ask. If you have got 7 million Californians who took this position, 70 judges, as you pointed out, and this long history that you have described, why, in this case, did you present but one witness on this subject? One witness. And I think it fair to say his testimony was equivocal in some respects. The defense on this case started with a long list of witnesses, but you see, it's it's easy for people who want to deprive gay and lesbians of their right to make all kinds of statements in campaign literature or on TV where they can't be cross-examined. But when they have to come into court <laughs> and defend those opinions under oath, well, I mean, initial depositions, their expert witnesses started having second thoughts. That included Dr. William Tam, one of the very men who worked to put Proposition 8 on the ballot in the first place. your relationship to the traditional family coalition? I am the executive director of the traditional family coalition. All right. This is an email that you wrote on May 15th, 2008. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And the last sentence of this says, we can't lose the battle for Proposition 8 or God's definition of marriage will be permanently erased in California. Now, was that your motivation for participating with ProtectMarriage.com and promoting Proposition 8? Mm. The other reason is, I think it's very important that our children not grow up to fantasize or thinking about, should I marry Jane or John when I grow up? Then you go on to say, what will be next? On their agenda list is legalizing having sex with children. And this was something that you were putting out in order to convince people to vote for Proposition 8. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then the last sentence says, if sexual orientation is characterized as a civil right, then so would pedophilia, polygamy, and incest. Do you agree with that, sir? Yes, I agree. And that's what you were telling people in order to convince them to vote for Proposition 8. Is, is that correct? Yes. Let me go down to point four, where you say that countries that legalized same-sex marriage saw alarming moral decline. You believe that after the Netherlands legalized same-sex marriage, the Netherlands went on after that to legalize incest and polygamy. And uh, who told you that, sir? It's in the internet. In the internet? And you just put it out there to convince voters to vote for Proposition 8. Yeah. After his deposition, Dr. Tam chose to avoid the subpoenas compelling him to appear in court under oath. In effect, Dr. Tam went on the lam, refusing to testify. And after our depositions of their potential witnesses were complete, only two, uh, two, were still willing to testify. Their only remaining expert on marriage was a Mr. Blankenhorn. Raise your right hand, please. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Mr. Blankenhorn, what is the primary purpose of marriage in human groups? We're embodied as male and female. 
that's the basic division in the species. We, we reproduce sexually. In fact, the famous anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss once described marriage as a social institution with a biological foundation. He was saying that across societies, that the man and the woman, whose sexual union makes the child, that those same two individuals are also the social and legal parents of the child. And there's only one institution in the world that performs the task of bringing together the three dimensions of parenthood, the biological, the social, and the legal. That institution is marriage, because we know how important this is for children. Very well. Mr. Boys, you may cross-examine. All right. Um, let me try to make this as simple as I can. Have any of the... Any of the scholars that you said you relied on said that permitting same-sex marriage would cause a reduction in heterosexual marriage. That's yes, no, or I don't know. Well, I know the answer. I cannot answer you correctly if the only words I'm allowed to choose from is yes or no. I can give you my answer in a very brief sentence. If you know the answer, why don't you share it with us? I... Well, I would be happy to, but he's only permitting me to give yes and no, and I cannot do that and be accurate. He is giving you three choices. Yes, no, I don't know. But I do know. I do know the answer. Then is it yes or is it no? Your, your Honor, I can answer the question, but I cannot give an accurate answer if the only two choices I have are yes and no, I, if you'll give me a sentence, I can answer this in one sentence is all I'm asking for. All right. Let's take a sentence. One sentence. Can you ask me the question again, please? Yes. Have any of the scholars who you say you relied on asserted that they believe permitting same-sex marriage will result in a reduction in the heterosexual marriage rate? My answer is that I believe that some of the scholars I have cited have asserted that permitting same-sex marriage would contribute to the deinstitutionalization of marriage, one of the manif manifestations of which would be a lower marriage rate among heterosexuals. But I do not have the knowledge that, in the, in the exact form of words you are asking me for, they have made the direct assertion that permitting same-sex marriage would directly lower the marriage rate among heterosexuals. Mr. Blankenhorn. That wasn't long. Questions and answers. If I were to take that as an I don't know, would that be fair? Well, with respect, Your Honor, I would disagree with you. I know exactly my answer to this question, and I have just stated it. And I would be happy to restate it. The record is clear on what you said. Your Honor, if you will, I want to address the issue of whether or not there is a legitimate basis for people to be concerned that redefining the traditional understanding of marriage presents any basis for concern about the harm that may result. But before analyzing this, I think we have to begin with two propositions. The first one is that redefining the institution will change the institution. And I think Mr. Blankenhorn really summed it up quite well. It's impossible to be completely sure about a prediction of future events, but I do have a great deal of confidence in the likelihood of the weakening of marriage 
through the process of deinstitutionalization to a greater degree than would be the case otherwise. If you change the definition of the thing, it's hard to imagine how it could have no impact on the thing. So while I don't think anyone here can say that they know from a scientific study that they, that they know with absolute certainty that this will happen, I sincerely believe that this is the most, this is a likely outcome, a likely result of adopting same-sex marriage. And when you say, based on the scholars that have studied this, that's because you're simply repeating the things that these scholars say. You're just a transmitter of the findings of these scholars. Is that correct? Now you're you're putting words in my mouth now. No, sir. Yes, sir. I was simply trying to report the view of some scholars that I was basing my arguments on. I'm saying that there are scholars, respected scholars, who have made this argument based on ethnographic research, and I've read them, and that's the basis for my assertion. That's all. Your Honor, could I ask this witness be instructed to listen to the question, answer my question, and not make a statement that is responsive to the question, even if he believes it's important? I don't need such instruction. That's what... that My intention is to do exactly that. Mr. Blankenhorn, one of the instructions that the court gives to the jury when an expert witness testifies is to consider the witness's background, training, and all of the other evidence in the case. And that other evidence includes the demeanor of the witness. So, I would urge you to pay close attention to Mr. Boy's questions and to answer them directly, succinctly. So bear that in mind. Yes, sir, I will. I'm really just addressing whether I was putting words in your mouth. Uh, If you look at page 300, lines 7 through 12, you said that you are basing your analysis on the work of highly regarded scholars, and then you said... Okay, ha, a gotcha moment. I, I used the word, I'm a transmitter of findings of eminent scholars. Gotcha, okay, okay. No, that's not a gotcha. I'm just trying to. Okay, I said transmitter seven months ago in a deposition. And what you meant there was that you weren't making these conclusions on your own. You were simply repeating what these scholars had to say. Is that correct? If I may say so in my own words, well, I was basing... Well, let me, uh, let me, uh, look at your words. Page 300. I am simply repeating things that they say. I can assure you these are not my own conclusions. I am, I'm, I'm a transmitter here of findings, of, of findings of these eminent scholars. Did you give that testimony at your deposition? That's what I said at the deposition. Your Honor, you will not find anywhere in the pages of history, nowhere, any suggestion that the traditional definition of marriage across cultures, across time, had anything whatever to do with homosexuality, had nothing to do with it. You heard Mr. Olson this morning recount the background of the Loving decision by the Supreme Court in 1967, and up to that time, numerous states had laws in the books which prohibited interracial marriage. Why are we not at that same tipping point here with respect to same-sex marriage? Your Honor, several reasons. Among the most important is this. What legitimate purpose of marriage, recognized historically or anywhere else, provided a rational basis for the state of Virginia to say that an interracial couple could not get married? It certainly wasn't core procreative purpose. Excuse me for interrupting. 
But you recall the rationale that was used by the courts was that the mixing of the races would have serious corrosive effects on society. Your Honor, those racist racist sentiments and policies had no foundation in the historical purpose of marriage, and in fact, they actually made people have illegitimate children, illegitimate natural children, which again was the perp. The purpose of marriage, as Justice Stevens says, is to license cohabitation and produce legitimate children. As the Eighth Circuit Court said, Your Honor, only opposite-sex couples can procreate naturally, and therefore, it is only opposite-sex couples who uniquely address this fundamental historic... But you don't draw any distinction between the state's interest where an opposite-sex couple have had to require some form of intervention in order to produce children. The state's interest is exactly the same, is it not? Your Honor, not. They are not quite the same, no. Well, then, what's the difference? I really think the state's main concern, or certainly among the state's main concerns in regulating marriage and in seeking to channel naturally procreative sexual conduct into stable and enduring unions, is to minimize what I call irresponsible procreation. It's not a good term, but I can't think of a more serviceable one and that is procreation that isn't bound by social norms and that often leads to children being raised by one parent or the other, or sometimes neither parent. And my point was that there are a number of heterosexual couples who do not naturally procreate, who require the intervention of some third party or some medical assistance of some kind. Yes, Your Honor, and it is not those opposite-sex couples either that the state is concerned about in terms of the threats to society and the concerns that society has from irresponsible procreation. Why don't those same values you have described apply to lesbian couples and gay couples coming together, supporting one another, providing love, comfort, and support for one another? Why don't all of those considerations apply just as much to the plaintiffs here as they apply to John and Jane Doe? Your Honor, Your Honor, I, I, I want to conclude this piece of my argument by calling the Court's attention to a case from the 11th Circuit called Lofton. It was a case in which the 11th Circuit upheld a Florida statute that prohibited gay adoptions. Taking all of this available information into account, the legislature could rationally conclude that a family environment with married opposite-sex parents remains the optimum social structure in which to bear children, and that the raising of children by same-sex couples presents an alternative structure for child-rearing that has not yet proven itself to be as optimal as the biologically-based marriage norm. I'd like to ask you something. Why should Mr. Blankenhorn's testimony be admitted? Does he meet the Daubert standards? His professional life for 20 years has been devoted to the study of one subject, the subject of marriage. He's written two books on this subject matter. Were they peer-reviewed? I think the Ninth Circuit's standards for qualifying an expert are particularly liberal, and I don't think they require... They certainly don't insist that an expert's publications have been peer-reviewed. So, Your Honor, again, I... 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 I really didn't come... All right here to particularly re-argue that, but I do believe, I, I, I will, I, 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 will the court entertain, uh, well, a break? Uh, maybe five minutes. Why don't we take a little more than that and resume at ten minutes after the hour? What did that mean? What? Irresponsible procreation? Illegitimate natural children? 
What is he talking about in there? They're going to say whatever they have to. It doesn't mean it's true or that it's about you. You two certainly weren't accidents. God knows. So he was talking about us, me and Elliot, specifically, to our faces? Spencer, it's, it's not... Technically, his back was to us, Spence. He didn't even say it to our faces. When I was 21 and she was 19, my sister was diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer. The summer I graduated from college, she died. I was the only biological child my parents had left. Losing Karen changed us all, not necessarily for the best. We all fumbled through the sadness for years after that. It really felt like we'd been devastated and broken forever. My 20s were so wrapped up in grieving and healing, but I eventually came out of it. And when I did, I felt crystal clear that I wanted a family. I wanted to give birth. I wanted to feel connected to my kids the way I had to my parents and Karen when she was alive. I was unequivocal in my desire to have kids and bring the best parts of my sister, our family, and our future together. The rest is pretty typical. My partner of seven years and I started the process of learning how to get pregnant. Yes, lesbians have to learn how. I went to a Considering Parenthood class for lesbians. We chose a donor. We started inseminating. And after a year and a half, I decided to use fertility medication, and that's when it worked. I got pregnant in the spring of 1994. I was eight months pregnant on my 30th birthday and bigger than our little house. You boys were born at UCSF on October 30th by C-section. I will not give you the OR details, but you were not accidents. You were not irresponsible. You two are about the most responsible, important, meaningful things I will ever do in my whole life. And don't you ever let anyone make you feel any different. You got it? Yes, yes Mom. Mom. But we still don't want to eat out tonight. Fine. Tacos, takeout, whatever you want. Hey, it's our turn. If you want to hear the rest, we should go back in. Come on. Now, you believe that gays and lesbians today are raising children, correct? Of course, yes. And, in fact, hundreds of thousands of children are being raised by gay and lesbian couples. Is that correct? I don't know how many. Did you ever try to find out? I did. And were you able to make an approximation? I was. Yes, sir, I was. And what was the approximation? I can't recall. Can you recall approximately? No, sir. Okay. And you recognize that in some cases, gays and lesbians are raising a child that is the biological child of one of the parents, and in some cases, they are raising adopted children. That's correct? Those would be two, two of... Well, uh, yeah, of course they would be. Those would be examples of, those would be examples of children in gay and lesbian homes. Yes. And you believe that permitting gay and lesbian couples to marry would significantly advantage the gay and lesbians themselves and the children that they are raising. Is that correct, sir? When you say advantage, do you mean improve the well-being of? Yes. My answer to your question is that. I believe that 
adopting same-sex marriage would be likely to improve the well-being of gay and lesbian households and their children. In fact, the studies show that all things being equal, two adoptive parents raising a child from birth will do as well as two biological parents raising a child from birth, correct? No, sir, that's incorrect. Well, sir? May I say another word on that, please? You will have an opportunity to redirect. The studies show that adoptive parents, um, because of the rigorous screening process that they undertake before becoming adoptive parents, actually, on some outcomes, outstrip the biological parents in terms of providing protective care for their children. Yes, I was going to come to that. I appreciate you for getting me there. In binder number one, we have a copy of your book, Future of Marriage, and the last two sentences. After all, part of the reason why the principle is so revolutionary is that it can grow and deepen over time. Groups that have long been considered effectively outside its moral reach, African Americans, women, people of certain colors or languages or religions, can over time and often as a result of great struggle, enter into its protective sphere. And then you get into two sentences I want to particularly direct your attention to. You say, I believe that today the principle of equal human dignity must apply to gay and lesbian persons. Do you see that? Yes. Yes, sir. And the I there is you, correct? Uh, uh, That's correct. And you say that. In that sense, insofar as we as a nation founded on this principle, we would be more, emphasize, more American on the day we permit same-sex marriage than when we were on the day before. And you wrote those words. Did you not, sir? I wrote those words. And you believe them to be correct? Yes. Yes, I now believe them. That's correct. Your Honor, I have no more questions. When they came into court, and they have to support and defend their opinions under oath and cross-examination, those opinions just melt away. There simply wasn't any evidence. There weren't any empirical studies. It's made up. It's junk science. And it's easy to say that on television. But the witness stand is a lonely place to lie. And when you come into court, you can't do that. And that's what we did. We put fear and prejudice on trial. Your Honor, Mr. Blankenhorn's testimony was utterly unnecessary for this proposition. Utterly unnecessary for this proposition. This goes back to the you don't need any evidence point. Mr. Cooper, carry on. The plaintiffs think that the consequences dominantly will be good consequences. But it's not something that they can possibly prove. And we would submit to you, because I have heard this and read this more than any three words that I have ever spoken, I don't know. I don't know how many times I wish I could have taken those words back. Well, because, Your Honor, whatever your question is, I damn sure know there's a risk. And we want to see what happens in Massachusetts. We want to see what happens right here and elsewhere. But the I don't know or we don't know where it's going to lead answer, is that enough to impose upon some citizens a restriction that others do not suffer from? We don't have to prove that redefining marriage to include same-sex marriage would visit harm upon the institution and the interest that it serves. Rather, we only have to prove that including same-sex couples would not serve those interests. The California Court of Appeals actually upheld the traditional definition of marriage, and one of the points it made, Your Honor, really goes to the heart of the matter. 
It is the proper role of the legislature, not the court, to fashion laws that serve competing public policies. There is a debate about the morals and the practicalities and the wisdom of this issue that really goes to the nature of our culture, and the Constitution should allow that debate to go forward among the people. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cooper. Mr. Olson, why don't we just begin at that point that Mr. Cooper just left off with? And that is, in a sense, isn't that the danger, not that you're going to lose this case, either here or at the Court of Appeals or at the Supreme Court, but that you might just win it? Well, I think the case you're referring to has to do with abortion, Your Honor. It does indeed. Your Honor, the cases upon which we rely have been entirely different cases. They have relied on fundamental, established constitutional law. Because the argument that Mr. Cooper made is essentially the same argument that was made in the Loving Court, which, by the way, the Loving Court unanimously decided to strike down. And we stand here today thinking, how could that have been? In 1967, that's only 40 or so years ago, we would have punished as a felon in the state of Virginia the president's own mother and father if they tried to travel there and be married. Now, Mr. Cooper's argument is, and I know why he would like to take back these words, we don't know. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have any evidence. Yet he was reading from articles written by various persons who did not come into this courtroom and testify under oath and subject themselves to cross-examination by my colleague, Mr. Boyce. Some of them didn't come into court because they have been cross-examined by Mr. Boyce in their depositions. But you do have to know. He does have to prove. The Romer Court specifically says, under the lowest standard of review, you have to prove that you have a legitimate interest and that the subject, Proposition 8 in this case, advances that legitimate interest. So, how does preventing same-sex couples from getting married advance the interest of procreation? What one single bit of information is there that they are a threat to the channeling function? If you accept that California has the right in the first place, and I do not, I believe, Your Honor, that there is a political tide turning. I think that people's eyes are being opened finally. People are becoming more understanding and tolerant. The polls tell us that. There isn't any secret in that. But that does not justify a judge in a court to say, I really need the polls to be just a few inches higher. I need someone to go out and take the temperature of the American public before I can break this barrier and break down this discrimination. Because if they change it here in the next election in California, we still have Utah, we still have Missouri, and we still have Montana. This case is going to go to a court. Some judge is going to have to decide what we've asked you to decide. And you have to have a reason, Your Honor. And you have to have a reason that's real. Not speculation. Not built on stereotypes. 
and not hypothetical. That's what the Supreme Court decision tells us. And I submit, at the end of the day, I don't know, and I don't have to put on any evidence, with all due respect to Mr. Cooper, does not cut it. It does not cut it when you're taking away the constitutional rights, basic human rights, and human decency from a large group of individuals. You cannot say after the fact, we are going to take away the constitutional right to liberty, privacy, association, and sexual intimacy that we already tell you you have. That is not acceptable. And it's not acceptable under our Constitution. And Mr. Blankenhorn is absolutely right. The day we end that, we will be more American. Thank you. So if there's nothing further, Mr. Cooper? Nothing. Very well, the matter is submitted. Now what? I know, I know, it's too late for soccer, but we're going to go home. We'll just pick up food on the way and you can study for your tests. And what, we're just supposed to wait? Yeah, how long do we have to wait? I'm not sure, Elliot. Why not? You've got all these lawyers and people in suits running around. I mean, someone's got to at least have an approximation of how long we have to wait. I mean, give me a break. Come on, we'll fight these guys another day. You've got soccer practice tomorrow. You've got tests to study for. Fine. Fine, fine. Mom? What? What is it? This whole thing was just ignorant. I hated being here. You're right. You're right. You shouldn't have had to be here. It's my fault, okay? I'm really sorry, Elliot. I am. I'm just... Let's just get out of here, okay? No. I just... I just remember when you were up there and looking around and seeing everyone crying around me and not even realizing myself, but I was crying too. I mean, I just saw my mom up there fighting for us, and I'm glad to hear it. I am. I just hated that we had to. I know. That's all. I'm proud of you. I guess that's what I'm saying. I love you, Mom. I love you too, honey. On August 4th, 2010, Federal Judge Walker ruled unequivocally that California's gay marriage ban, Proposition 8, is unconstitutional. And on February 7th, 2012, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that decision. It was a momentous victory for gay rights supporters, but it was not the end of the fight. It was the beginning of what promises to be a longer struggle, and one destined for this country's highest court. Judge Walker's decision was stayed, pending decisions by higher courts. So tonight, like millions of other Americans, Jeff Zarillo and Paul Katami... Sandy Steer and Chris Perry still cannot be legally wed. Their families still unrecognized and unprotected in the country they love. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The first time somebody said to me, are you married? And I said yes, 
I would think, that feels good and honest and true. I would feel less like I had to protect my kids or worry that they feel any shame or sense of not belonging. I shouldn't have to feel ashamed. Being gay doesn't make me any less American. It doesn't change my patriotism. It doesn't change the fact that I pay my taxes and I own a home and I want to start a family. I would be able to stand alongside my parents, my brother, and his wife. To be able to stand together as one family who have all had the opportunity of being married. And the pride that one feels when that happens. If Prop 8 were undone, and kids like me, growing up in Bakersfield right now, could never have to know what this felt like, their entire lives would be on a higher arc. They would live with a higher sense of themselves that would improve the quality of their entire life. And that's what I hope is the outcome of this case. I hope for something for Chris and I, but other people, over time, would benefit in an even more profound, life-changing way. That's what I hope for. You have been listening to Eight, a play about the fight for marriage equality by Dustin Lance Black. Featured in the cast were Austin Beach as Charles Cooper, Bob Carroll as Evan Wolfson, Shannon Grace as Maggie Gallagher, Christian Ferris as David Blankenhorn, MJ Cogburn as Dr. Cott, Jeremy Hennessy as Dr. Gregory Herrick, Michael Cogburn as Elliot Perry, Mason Cogburn as Spencer Perry, John Washington as Dr. Tam, Kian Lutz as Ryan Kendall, Christy Glick as Sandy Steer, Melody Gaines as Chris Perry, Kyle Bauer as Dr. Island Meyer, Morris Curran as Jeff Cirillo, Omar Lopez as Paul Katami, Lisa Marie Ayala as the court clerk, Victoria Flonsky as the journalist, with special guest stars Pete Lutz as Judge Vaughn Walker, Jack Ward as David Boyce, Tim Gillick as Dr. Gary Segura, and Mark Brzee as Theodore Olson, with Nick Womack as the narrator. This play was written by Dustin Lance Black, produced by Pete Lutz for 63 Audio and Mark Brzee for Leap Audio. Post-production by Mark Brzee. Line direction by Pete Lutz. Love Don't Know a Reason by Michael Callan was used without permission. Eight was originally funded by the American Foundation for Equal Rights and Broadway Impact. This has been a co-production of 63 Audio and Leap Audio. Thank you for listening. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic and live radio drama. 
So yeah, either the main mutual audio network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.